You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Well, um, I feel like I need to uh, introduce myself. Uh, we were Sherry and I were here two weeks ago, and prior to that we had not been here since June. So, uh, having been, um, I was in, um, in Colombia, um, and uh, then in Argentina, and then um, Sherry joined me in Argentina, and then we spent almost a week on the East Coast visiting children in the Washington and Northern Virginia area. So, so it's coming back here is um, it's very enjoyable. Uh, it's it's enjoyable to see people that we know and have come to love, and um, and that uh, we also feel love. So we it's so it's a good thing. Uh, the church is a family. That's one of the things as we go uh, later on in the in the fall looking at first peter we're going to see that uh, the church in one of the one of the ways that peter talks about the church is as a is as a family and so uh, that's um it's a comforting thing to come back so and for those of you that i I just some of you i just met today i think some uh, that i talked to said they're just visiting and you are certainly welcome um, and i hope you feel that here and so um, I want to share this word then, which uh, was given to Peter so long ago. So we're starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's different words for that could be translated blessed. One of the words just means to be happy. That's in the... In the um, the uh, in in Mar- in Matthew chapter five, where Jesus says, "Blessed," that means happy are you. But in this case, the word that is used is a word that means to be well spoken of. Well spoken of is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, that leads to the question, "Why?" And uh, naturally, Peter, who wrote this, was as he wrote this, he's thinking. God is worthy to be well spoken of. Why? Well, verse 2, what has he done? We have the work of the Father, the foreknowledge, the electing work of God the Father in choosing us. We have the sanctifying work of the Spirit in bringing us to holiness, in making our lives uh, more like the life of, his, of, of our Lord Jesus. And we have the work of Jesus Christ, whose death on the cross, whose resurrection are the basis of our forgiveness and the basis of our hope of eternal life. So we have that. So blessed be the God and Father. But he goes on from there, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Mercy. What is mercy? We know that God is loving. The scripture tells us over and over again that that God is loving. And that um, when we read in, we won't turn to John chapter 17, but in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to his Father. And there he, he celebrates the love which he enjoyed with his Father for all eternity, uh, that was a relationship of love. 
And so we see that God is loving, but the Son didn't need mercy. Jesus the Son did not need God's mercy. He needs nothing. So what is mercy? Mercy then is giving love to those who are in some situation of necessity. Whether it would be feeding someone who's hungry, or in the case that Peter is thinking of, those of us, all of us as human beings who need God's forgiveness. And so God's mercy, his love, his merciful love is shown in reaching down to us to save us by his son. And so um, we are in need of mercy because our very existence depends on him and our sins have separated us from him. So God in his mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, one of the things that I think it's easy to forget, uh, it's, it's very possible to take our church life and just look at it as a series of responsibilities and to look at Christianity as just some variety of morality. It's just how to be good. But when we look at um, the the, how the, the essential thrust of Scripture, we see that Scripture starts with God in creation and God making all things and saying, these things are good. And he gets to the very end, he gets to the seventh day, and he said, and these are very good. We see a God who delights to create, who shows his beauty, who shows his love, who shows how he administers and orders things in, in perfection. He shows that in creation. So Peter has that as a framework. So when he says he causes us to be born again, he has this idea in, in, the, in, in his mind is this God who is overwhelmingly generous, who is overwhelmingly overflowing with all that makes life necessary. And so um, just uh, an example of that, uh, the psalm that, that uh, Terry read this morning, uh, in fact, most of the psalms would fall in that category, are a celebration. Um, there's a few psalms that are just uh, where a person is just pouring out their hearts to God in their sadness. But most psalms uh, are, are work with the idea of just exalting God for everything that he is. So we could have picked uh, way over a hundred psalms for this, but I just, uh, so I just, as I looked, I said, well, let's just look at Psalm 136. It says, Psalm 136, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And the psalm continues this idea of his loving kindness. And loving kindness is a word that, uh, it's, it's an old English word. It's not one that we use very much. Um, we don't normally, we don't go to the store and somebody uh, waits on us and they, they pay, pay special attention to us and they give, a, they give a treat to our child and we don't say thank you for your loving kindness. We just, we don't talk that way anymore. But loving kindness is a word that's used to translate a, a special word in Hebrew which means God's love shown by his keeping of his covenant. God makes promises. 
God keeps his promises, and he shows his love in the keeping of those promises. And uh, so Peter has that in mind. So when we're born anew, we are born anew to a living hope. This living hope is, is um, I, I want, to, I want to, to jump a few verses now. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. To obtain an inheritance. So this living hope is something in which we are born anew. God works in us, brings us to a new way of thinking, doesn't bring us to perfection. He's working, the Spirit is working to bring us, uh, to change us. But he, he sees us as complete in Christ. He sees us as forgiven. And we have operative in us a new set of desires, a new set of allegiances, a new set of values, and a new relationship with him. That's, we're born to that living hope. And that living hope is the hope of an inheritance. And I want to, we're going to spend some time on that inheritance this morning. So, cause us to be born again to a living hope, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Well, first of all, this salvation, uh, this salvation is a last day salvation, verse 5. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is a last day salvation. This is a future inheritance, a future inheritance. It's spoken of as an inheritance which cannot perish. It can't die. It can't rust out. can't rot. It is undefiled. So in verse uh, 4 we have, which is imperishable and undefiled. Undefiled, that word means it's pure um, in, a, in a moral and a um, spiritual sense. I think one of the things that um, we have, it's easy to get used to it because it's become so much uh, part of the panorama of our, of our national landscape, um, is just the level, of, uh, the level of corruption and rot that surrounds us at every level. Um, uh, national politics and and in every way in our in in education um, in relationships the corruption the rot that is around us but the inheritance which God gives us will not be shot through with the moral rot that is part and parcel of our lives today going back to verse 4 this inheritance is imperishable it's undefiled it will not fade away fade away. It can't get old. It can't get wrinkled. It can't degenerate. This is a, a term that's uh, elsewhere in Scripture is used of flowers. These flowers will not wilt. They will not fade away. We have um, any number. I think, I think in, in every, every genre of popular music, uh, we have songs about fading flowers, right? Uh, pop music has fading flowers. Country music has lots of fading flower songs. Folk music, rock music, fading flower songs. Fading flower songs, the language I'm most familiar with, Spanish has lots and lots of fading flower songs. Why is that? 
Well, they use it to talk about love that was new and fresh and vibrant and it was perfumed and it was, and the colors were stunning and look what happened. And so we have this imagery of the flowers, right? We have this imagery of flowers fading, but the flower may be there, but it's lost the tenderness of youthful beauty. But our inheritance in Christ will never fade. It will never diminish in its beauty. Nor will it diminish in the intensity with which we enjoy it. It's a wonderful thing. Let's continue to talk some more about our final inheritance. Uh, one of the things about our final inheritance is that it is sure. It says it is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. So this final salvation is sure. Um, G, uh, Paul says in verse 3, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so what I'd like to do at this right now is just think a little bit about different aspects of the resurrection of Christ and how the resurrection of Christ uh, makes our salvation sure as we, as we remind ourselves of them. Um, the resurrection assures our salvation because it's based on solid evidence and because only the work which God could do in Christ in raising him from the dead, that's the only kind of thing that could ever solve our problem, that could ever defeat death, to which we are all headed. So about not being perishable, think of this. I'm going back to verse 3, or verse 4, inheritance which is imperishable, thinking about Christ's resurrection. Christ's res existence in his resurrected body is one in which he cannot die. And so we cannot die after our resurrection. In Romans uh, 6, 8, and 9, Paul says, Romans 6, 8, and 9, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And so we share in that certainty that death has been defeated. About being pure, not being morally or spiritually corrupt. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him like he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so our hope of the resurrected and coming Christ enables us to be pure. And what about not fading away? I thought of Revelation 21, 23, which says the city, that is the, the new city, the new Jerusalem, the promised city of our inheritance, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. We know that's the Lamb of God, the very Son of God. This is a city which cannot degenerate, which will not ever be subject to the problems of the cities we have here on this planet because it is God's city. And so we look forward because of Christ's resurrection, because of who he is, we, we realize that our inheritance cannot perish, our inheritance 
cannot become corrupt and it can't fade away. Verse 5. So just a, uh, as I was studying this, what I noticed is that this is like a chain. It's like a daisy chain. Um, all these truths, they just kind of lead one to the other, to the other, to the other. And um, so, blessed be God. Why? Because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through his great mercy. This is done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of that is to give us an inheritance. And the inheritance has the qualities we just saw, imperishable, uncorrupted, and it will not fade away. Verse 5, we who have been forgiven by Christ, not by our own merits or because we're good enough, but simply by his grace, are protected by the power of God. And of course, uh, that's one of the things that we emphasize here. We emphasize the sovereignty of God. We emphasize the power of God. But the question is, so he does it by his power, right? We're protected by the power of God. But how does the power of God work? Interestingly, it says the power of God. We're protected by the power of God through faith. Protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So faith is an extraordinary thing. Uh, verse, uh, verse 9, um, Paul, uh, Peter also says, we obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of your souls. Uh, Ephesians 2.89, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is a very remarkable thing. Faith is the gift of God. Faith is the work of God. But it is not God's faith. Hear me again. Faith is the work of God, but it is not God's faith. It is our faith. The faith that is a work of God in my life is not God's faith. It is my faith. And so that just as in the inspiration of Scripture... It is God's word, but the writing of the words were done by human beings. It was their writing. And so we always have this mystery uh, in, in, in Christianity, and it's in the very heart of our relationship to who God is. The God who makes a world that is not himself. The God who is able to make beings, persons, who are not him. And so when God works to change my beliefs, his truth works in me. It's his truth, but it's my belief. When he works to bring me joy, it's his work to produce joy. But the joy is not his joy. The joy is my joy. I'm not saying that selfishly. I'm just trying to emphasize something here, and we're going to well, we'll keep pulling this thread a little bit further as we go because the rest of our text this morning has to do with faith, and it has to do with tested faith. So, and we are, speaking of faith, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation. Several characteristics of this faith, and I'm going to call it 
saving faith. I'm going to start out with saving faith. Just keep your heads up. Starting out with saving faith, and then we're going to talk about tested faith. All right? So we start out with saving faith. Saving faith is faith in someone or something yet to be revealed, according to this text. Verse 5. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed when? Now? No. In the last time. Uh, verse 7. That the proof of your faith may be found, I'm jumping over a, few, a, a clause there, that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in both cases, the word there means an unveiling, a revealing, an uncovering. Okay, it's it's the Greek word for uncovering, unveiling, um, which is you know, the word there that is translated reveal. So we're waiting something that has not yet been uncovered. It has not yet been revealed. So uh, saving faith is a future thing. Uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the, I'm getting uh, the old version mixed up with the new version, so I'm just going to look it up here. I'll mix everything up. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things what? That we already saw? Uh, faith is the assurance of things that I can touch right now? No. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What we already see, we don't need to hope for. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.24. For that which we see, we do not need to hope for. So what justifies our holding to this faith in God or holding to God himself? Well, it's because of what he has already done. The only reason we believe that he would do something in the future is because we've seen him do things in the past. And if he's touched my life and given me the peace of sins forgiven, um, if I have come to believe in his death and resurrection, I see something in the past. And if I believe that he is the same God, will be the same God in the future, I can believe his promises for the future. So saving faith has a future orientation. Uh, but it isn't just that. Verse 8. Saving faith, uh, this verse says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Referring to Jesus. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. So this is a faith which brings forth a love for the person of Jesus. So it isn't just future things that we can't see. There are present things we can't see. We can't reach out and touch Jesus. Um, I, can't, uh, I can't see him. I don't know what he looks like physically. I'm thinking that we have, that's a little easier for us to understand because we can love people just ordinary human beings, right? Ordinary mortals. We can love them uh, without seeing them. I, I remember uh, back in the, I wasn't around then, but I remember hearing about back in the pioneer days and the days of immigration, you know, between about 1870 and to about 1915 or so, which was the big, huge wave of immigration into the U.S. Actually, it was into Canada and all over South America. There was this enormous wave of immigration from Europe of... Um, Sometimes there was a shortage of, uh, shortage of women, and especially women that spoke the language of the men that were here. So I remember reading about um, Scandinavians that would uh, 
it wasn't quite mail order bride, but it was, um, they would write back to Sweden or Norway or wherever it was, and um, they would enter into negotiations to marry a woman that they had never seen. And um, it seems kind of risky to me, but I guess um, necessity produces, extreme necessity takes extreme measures to solve. And so that was one of the ways of dealing with it. But it's very possible for there to be love and an acquaintance and a relationship with somebody whom you've never seen. So that's not so difficult to understand. However, um, because of something that, that uh, Peter is going to bring up, it does become more difficult. And that's when all the people around you, or many of the people around you, look at this faith in Jesus as a myth or a fairy tale, and they look at Jesus himself as um, an interesting, perhaps an attractive figure who is more or less historical. And, uh, and they look at your faith as a sort of a fairy tale thing. It's a crutch that you rely on. It's, it's how you get through. And well, if it works for you, I guess that's fine, but it's not for me. And so Actually seeing and believing in the Jesus who we cannot see becomes more difficult when um, that belief is not reinforced, in fact, when it's actively opposed. And so uh, Peter, and it was really no different in Peter's day, even though Peter had seen Jesus, the people he was writing to hadn't. So the fact that they were, they were about, um, they were uh, about 1,970 years closer to Jesus and we are really didn't matter in terms of their access of being able to access him. They couldn't access him any more than we can. They did have the word of the apostles, but the apostles were dying and they were putting their words into scripture as Peter was here. And so uh, they were acquainted with the message of who Jesus was, but they were also acquainted with opposition. And when Peter writes them, he's all through this book we see in First Peter that they are facing uh, terrible opposition. So um, saving faith is not only faith in something future, it's not only love for Jesus in the present. Saving faith is also tested faith. Uh, verse 6, it says, just a moment. Thank you for the songs, by the way. I really enjoyed this, the songs. Um, thank you, everybody who participated in leading it. I was starting to lose my voice, so I had to quit. Uh, but anyway, so that's why I'm drinking water. Um, and we'll get back to music in just a little bit here. But so verses 6 and 7, saving faith is tested faith. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And uh, verse 7, that the proof of your faith, the testing of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. So we have a faith here that is being tested. How is faith tested? And it's right at this point that I think we need to pay special attention to the example of Jesus Christ in regard to faith. Um, let me start out with the question. Jesus, God is, God is omniscient, we say. God knows all things. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God's son. God knows all things. Jesus is God. Did Jesus ever need to learn anything? Before you say no, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. 
verses 7 through 9. Hebrews chapter 5, 7 through 9. And this text, which is, is talking about Jesus, and, and, and here in Hebrews specifically, God is focused, or God, uh, the author to, to the Hebrews is focused on um, Jesus as the God-man. God made flesh. And so here in, in uh, 5 verse 7 it says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. What is this talking about? We'll just jump uh, for a moment to Matthew 26. What was, why was Jesus crying? Why was he crying out? What is going on? And so we look in Matthew chapter 26. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, 38. So Jesus there is praying, with, uh, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. In just moments, he is going to be betrayed. He knows that. Verse 38, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And in verse 42, he went again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Back to Hebrews chapter 5. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Do you suppose that Jesus did not know what was going to happen? Did not Jesus know that he was, in fact, going to be betrayed and be crucified? Had he not submitted to that as the divine plan long before he came to earth? Was he not prepared emotionally? Why was he doing that? Let's continue in Hebrews chapter 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. What is this that he needed to learn? Obedience. Had he not always been obedient? If Jesus, the Son, had always been obedient from eternity past, how was it that he did not know obedience? But remember that this text is, is a text about what it is what, are the, what is, what is the effect of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, becoming man? 
taking on human flesh. And remember that we talk about faith here. Remember I said, faith is not God's faith. Faith is my faith. Faith is your faith. And Jesus as the eternal Son of God, a Jesus taking on human flesh, the life that he lived, he did not live by faith in his own power. That's very clear. He never did anything to help himself. He never fed himself with a miracle. He never did any miracles for himself. His faith was a faith in the Father. And so he doesn't appeal to his own authority and say, well, I guess I'm just going to have to gut it out in here and we're going we're to make it through. He says, Father, he, he, is, he is moved to the, point, to the point of extremity where he realizes that this is his life and his alone. This is his destiny and his alone. His obedience based on faith, not in himself, but on faith in the Father. And so indeed, it was not the Father's faith, it was the faith of the Son by which he endured. For us then, tested faith is when we must trust solely in God, when all appearances, when all the opinions of those around us, our own feelings, our own doubts would go against what God has said. And maybe when we can't even feel in the slightest degree that he's even there, that he's present, we don't have the slightest inkling of anything. We can't, there's not a whisper, there's not uh, uh, any movement about us that would say God is here. Where are you? And at that point, it is only faith in God not on how we feel about him or what anybody else says or what we think. A belief that his promises made to us in the past about the future, he will surely fulfill them, even though we don't have any idea how that will happen. So when we're tempted to deny Christ so as to get along, be viewed favorably by those around us, or when we try to manipulate others rather than to believe that God will meet our needs when we have an attitude of service. It is by believing God in what seem to be little things that we are prepared to stand firm in the greater trials. But yet this faith that we have, it is our faith, but it is by the work of God. And the very Son of God who underwent that is with us especially in the presence of the Spirit. Tested faith. Now I started out with saving faith. Remember, saving faith is, is towards, oriented towards the future. It's expressed in love towards Christ in the present. And saving faith is faith that is tested. Now let's talk two things about tested faith. Tested faith is a rejoicing faith. Verse 6 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Tested faith becomes a rejoicing faith. 
Now I said, you know, sometimes we don't have any emotional or external supports that would, anything external that would help us to believe. Anything except God's word and believing that he is. And believing that he rewards those who seek after him. But how often it happens that after that moment, that dark moment of the soul, that valley of the shadow of death experience, how often it happens that he brings us joy. I've experienced that. I think many of you have. There's a real joy that comes. I think of the example, a very extreme example. Um, well, just before I talk about the example, joy inexpressible, full of glory. That's what I was thinking about the music. You know, there's times words, um, I love words, I love language. Um, it's one of the, the great passions of my life are words and language and, and, and grammar and, and trying to use words as well as I can and delighting in what other people do with words. But you know what, words, words have limits. And sometimes it's things like music and, and other ways that we try to express things that we just can't quite get in the words. So that's what I was thinking. I was just so grateful for the, for the music this morning. And um, sometimes we just need to kneel down. Um, and we're not a church where um, people raise their hands, although I think sometimes it would be good if we were. Um, it, there's times when we can't express things just go beyond they go beyond words but I want to just talk about this joy thing um, some of you how many of you have heard of uh, Corey ten Boom Anybody? quite a few of you have she was a, a, a Dutch woman uh, she and her sister Betsy were uh, imprisoned by the Nazis during the Second World War they were hiding um, Jews that were trying to escape uh, to England and uh, so they were part of this train of of uh, helping Jews to escape. They were, they were caught and they were sent to prison camp. Her sister uh, died in camp. But one of the things in the book that I remember was uh, her relating about she and her sister being in this prison camp. And the fleas were so bad that it just made everybody miserable. And of course she and her sister were miserable too. They all were suffering together with the fleas. But the fleas were so bad that the guards didn't want to come. So the guards would just bring the food and get out of there as fast as they can. That was blessing number one. No guards, or very, very, very little guard presence. Second thing, some hosts had managed to get a Bible in there. I don't remember how that happened. She does talk about that. They had a Bible, and they were sharing the scripture with the, their fellow prisoners, and they were so grateful for the fleas and for the Bible. But uh, this incredible test of faith, as I mentioned, uh, her, sister, uh, her sister did die um, during the time in the, in the prison camp. But the joy that comes because of obedience, or again, another extreme example is Paul uh, and Silas after being beaten, and so there they are in the prison and they're singing. The joy of the, that God brings, this is something that, that comes from his spirit. There is a supernatural joy that comes um, that, that God ministers to us by his spirit. And we need, there's times when we have trouble believing, we need to call upon his spirit to help us believe, to give us the faith. We need to, uh, we need to realize that the joy isn't just a human response, but the joy comes as he works in us. And then finally, tested faith is worth more than anything we can find on this earth. Verse 6, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, 
that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tested faith, Paul uses the likeness of faith being tested by fire, uh, which he also mentions in, in uh, he uses the same figure of speech in 1 Peter 4. Um, whoops, I lost it. Okay. Oh, here we are. Yeah, 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So he's using the image of fire testing metal, right? We all know that when, that when you test metal by fire, um, you separate out, the, the metal stratifies, and you separate out the different layers of metal, and, and um, each metal goes to its own level. And so here we have gold being tested by fire. But here he is speaking of faith being tested by fire. But that faith being tested by fire is far more precious than the best gold that has ever been uh, extracted from the earth and worked by human hands. That tested faith is priceless. I don't know what each one of you is facing. And, and we really don't know what we will be facing in the future. Uh, we know that we have uh, brothers and sisters in the faith that are suffering martyrdom at this time or imprisonment, being driven from their homes, their jobs, uh, being separated from their families. Uh, whatever we suffer here is, is quite light in comparison to that. We don't know what the future holds, but we also do know that each day each moment is a testing of our faith. Often not in such extreme things, but it's always a test of faith when we are tempted to put something which offers itself to us as the way to satisfy our needs, as the way to really bring true joy to us. We're, we're tempted to take that thing and put it in the place of Jesus Christ. A constant temptation. And our faith is being tested then at every moment whether it be in little things or small things. But brother or sister, that testing is normal. And that testing is something by which you will receive things of great value. Not only the eternal inheritance, but as well, joy in the present. And the experience and the joy of loving Jesus Christ, even in this moment. So I just want to encourage you with that, that Whatever your circumstance, you take it back to God. You take it by faith in Jesus and in his promise, knowing that he will keep his word to us.